0: Sisters, listen closely. Finding out he's the one can sometimes feel like traveling through a desert of uncertainty. I mean, every time you feel like you've reached an oasis, it ends up being a mirage. As your resident sister and friend, here are five common red flags that you need to steer clear away from. First up, if he's asking for your phone number straight off the bat, but not your dad's, well... That's a major red flag waving in your face. Next, if he's hitting you up with texts and calls late at night, you better believe he's not serious. And chances are, he won't respect your boundaries. Watch out for those put-downs disguised as sarcastic banters. You know, the ones that make you the butt of the joke. It's time to show him the door. And oh, If he's more interested in hearing himself talk than listening to what you have to say, girl, that's a sign you need to run in the opposite direction. And let's not forget the classic line, my ex was crazy. Yeah, right. If he's mouth-mouthing his ex left and right, chances are he's the one with the issues. And those are just the obvious red flags. Let's help you uncover what's really hiding underneath the surface with VibeCheck, the ultimate prompt card game for meaningful connections. Crafted with deep respect for Islamic traditions, VibeCheck goes beyond the surface, allowing you to discover the essence of your potential life partner's faith, character, and aspirations. With 8 thoughtfully crafted categories and 135 thought-provoking questions, ViveChick ensures a comprehensive understanding of your potential spouse, from values and ambitions to personal quirks and preferences. I mean, skip the surface level of discussions and dive straight into what truly matters. Visit our website, www.thedigitalstudy.com now and take the first step towards finding your righteous partner. Your journey to marital bliss begins here. Assalamu rahmatullahi warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. It is your sister and friend Adar, and you're listening to the Digital Sisterhood Podcast. Boy, do I have a story for you. First, I want to preface this by saying I could have been Sherlock's home sidekick, okay? My investigation skills are actually top tier. Somebody needs to tell BBC News. That your girl is a natural, okay? But before I get ahead of myself, let me tell you how Sophia, our unofficial casting podcast director, planted a seed in my head this time last year, okay? It was around the time when we were casting stories for season two, and Sophia calls and says, Yo, I heard the craziest rumor. And I'm already, you know, in the ear like, what? What's the rumor? What's the tea? And she says, listen, I heard a story about the international And if you don't know what State International is, it is one of the most popular and published translations of the Qur'an. Matter of fact, it was that translation that gave me an incredible introduction to the Qur'an and its meaning. It was also the translation that inspired me to study Arabic today. It was my personal go-to and preferred translation. And probably yours too. Go look up www.qur'an.com or check the translation of your current kitab. There's probably a high chance that it was translated by Sahih International. Nonetheless, if you look up the Quran on the internet, you'll also see that Sahih International is also one of the listed options of translations, next to the notable ones like Yusuf Ali, Doctor Mustafa Kitab, Muhammad Pikal, and many more. But let me tell you what the rumor was, okay? The rumor was, according to Sophia, was that Sahih International was actually wait for it. A penmanship name for three revert white American women. I repeat, three white revert American women. Listen, I couldn't believe it. I literally thought, Sophia, I said, Sophia, where are you getting these stories from? I'm pretty sure that's not the case. I don't know why I always just assumed that these transitions were written by men, but to hear they're written by women and like they're American women, they're white American. I just could not believe it, to be honest. It just seemed like a little, a little firefetch. But you know what? Sophia really encouraged me to, to dig deep. She's like, you know what? Go just do your research. See if it is true. Um, you might be surprised. And you might have the best story on your hands. So I was like, yeah, you know, maybe, you know, I can get in my investigative bag. You know what I'm saying? I could do a little research one or two. So I did. So I went on Google, chill Google, because you know, chill Google never fails me. OK, I start Googling international women, international Muslim women, international river, white Muslim women. And then eventually something came up and I look it up and I see that there was an interview about them. I read a little bit about it and then I recognized there was a name there because most of the, the, the three names that I had seen, two of the names that I had seen were Kunyas. But the third name was a full name and it said Amitullah Bentley. I was like, Bentley, I copy-pasted, I'm like, okay, cool, I got her name, I went to LinkedIn, because you know, you're going to find everybody in LinkedIn, so I put her in, <laughs> in LinkedIn, I wrote, Amitola Bentley, first of all, I love her last name, Bentley, and I was just waiting to see if she'd come up, and lo and behold, Amitola Bentley comes up, you see this really nice woman, This this really charming smile, okay with this really wrapped around hijab looks like the nicest lady in the world probably somebody i've seen before maybe my neighbor who gives me cookies every now and then <laughs> um but i was like oh my god she seems like such a sweet woman so i clicked it just to make sure it was her when i clicked on linkedin i can tell she hadn't been on it for a very long time i went to her um employment section and i saw it it said ceo of say international and i gasped like, what this is real. Is she really a woman? Wait, I, obviously she's a woman, but is she, does she really do this? Is Sophia right? Are the rumors true? Couldn't believe my eyes. And so I started to dig deeper. And I noticed that she also had some other interesting stuff on there as well, which we can talk about a bit later. But I was like, yo, I need to I need to find out more. And so what I did is I messaged her on LinkedIn confident thinking i'm gonna get a response one or or two days i didn't hear from her from her for a whole month at this point i'm like is there any way other i can find her so what i do i check instagram i check facebook she is not coming up anywhere i'm like is this person even real is this account even real have i lost my mind you know i'm saying i'm just thinking this is not adding up she is nowhere to be found nowhere else just this linkedin page That seems like she hasn't logged in since probably two thousand and six. I don't know. I don't even know when LinkedIn was created, to be honest. But probably the first day it was created, she never went back on because I could not. I could not get a hold of her. Made me really sad because I was like, I have a. I have this really intense feeling. There's an incredible story here, but I just was like, how am I gonna find the story? This is probably gonna be the story of the year, man. What the heck? Like, I was just so frustrated. And then, obviously, I had, to, I had to continue with business. And so, season two was on its way. I would interviewed Ustada Mariam Amir, if you guys remember from season two. And um something, at the end of her interview, something told me, yo, what are the odds are that maybe Ustad Mariam knows Aventilla Belli? Maybe, you know, she knows Dr. Haifa Yunus, who actually did speak to her, that I seen the interview on YouTube. I was like, maybe she can get you know her email from her I don't know I'm just I'm just trying to connect dots here bro I'm just trying to connect dots I'm trying to I'm trying to go back to Sophia saying I caught her I found her period per I'm investigating you know uh you know champion of the year I'm just trying to get all these labels but like I was like let me just ask her and so after the interview was done I just say that stand <laughs> money and me I lost our time bless her I mean I was like hey have you heard of this woman named Amitabha Bentley the CEO a CEO of Sierra International. She's like, Yes, I do. I did hear uh a few things about her. I'm like, man, everybody knows about her but me. Um, and she's like, Yeah, she's like, um, I think Dr. You know, Haifa might know, uh, have her contact information. This and the third, let me ask her. I said, Ustada, if you get her number or email, I will make you, I will say, I will, I will, I will make the biggest dua I've ever made for anybody in my entire life. Obviously, that was a that was a very you know, bold statement and Stan Money was like, Oh, well, okay, no problem. I'm gonna make you good for it. And so four days later, I get an email, boom, and it's Stan Money. I'm saying, I'm ready for that dua now. And I'm like, what? And then something like I just scroll down and I see Amitolla Belli's email. I literally start cheering in my bedroom, she me shaking, shoulder shaking, all that. And I was just like, oh my God, I got her email. I call Sophia, I'm like, Sophia, I got her email. She goes, No way. I said, Yeah, I'm gonna get her email. I'm gonna talk to her right now. I'm going to just charm her. And, and just tell her about this podcast and, and just ask her if she's going to come on and tell her story. She's like, okay, bet. So I email Amitola (laughs) Batley. I write a really nice email. I tell her how much, like, um, I'm excited to talk to her. How I heard about this that and the third that, you know, she potentially did something really great. And I really would like her backstory, this that and the third, the podcast, blah, blah, blah. And then a few days later, well, to be exact, 97 hours and 22 minutes, give or take, she responds to me. And she writes in a quote, Wa Alaikum salam. How did you get my work email? I was mortified. Now, I don't know what I was expecting in response, but she sounded upset. And I was upset that she was upset. I was panicking. I was like, oh my God, she's never going to trust us with her story. Why? Why did I email from her work email? Am I a weirdo? Why do I track her down like she's some sort of like, like, why do I do that? Why do I move like a creep like that? I was, free, I was panicking. I was literally panicking. I was like, oh my God, that's it. I, I, I lost my shot. Like, that is so embarrassing. Oh my God, what do I say? I don't even know what to say. Anyways, after a few more apologies, a video call, and probably a really long apology, she trusted us enough to sit down with us and tell us her story in a way that she had never done before. Well,
1: thank you, sister. First of all, my apologies (laughs) if I came off curt when I answered your email. I was just like, how did somebody get my email? I didn't even realize that when I had spoken with Dr. Yusuf that I, or uh, excuse me, Dr. Haifa, that I had even used my work email. I was probably just in a rush and, you know, forgot to change it to my personal one. And, you know, we had had somebody interview us a long time ago um, that turned out to kind of twist things. Mm. And so we were always very apprehensive of doing interviews. Um, and you also have to remember where we were at and what we were doing at the time. So the three of us, Muhammad Asami, uh, Mary Kennedy, and myself who make up Sahih International, we were all living in Jeddah at the time and working. Uh, this was in the late 80s, early 90s. And you have to think the society there at that time was still very divided um, about women being on the forefront and especially because we were foreigners, we weren't Saudi. Um, And so we felt that there may be resistance, um, like who are these women and why do they think that they can do this project? And that's why we always just used our company name sahih international in the beginning and then never even introduced anything about ourselves
0: you know how i mentioned that aj was just too hard to find well there was a reason for that there was a disturbing and completely biased interview of them that was published by the daily mail back in 2017 in the article it completely took their words out of context and started off the piece with saying and i quote Three American women who converted to Islam moved to Saudi Arabia and founded a publishing company who had inadvertently created the most popular translation of the Quran for ISIS terrorists, which was wildly biased and Islamophobic. After the article, AJ, Muhammad, and Mary Kennedy decided they weren't going to talk to the media again, which explained why finding AJ felt like she didn't want to be found. Because she didn't before we get into this, let's take it back to the beginning of AJ's story to get the full picture.
1: So I was born in Rochester, Minnesota. I'm the fifth of five children. My sister and brothers were, those four were all born within four years. And then there was a gap and then me. Hmm. So I actually grew up very different than my siblings. My siblings, you know, played sports and had paper routes and went camping and fishing and, um, all that stuff. They were very much a family unit. And then by the time I was in kindergarten, my mom decided to go to college. She had never been to college and she became a nurse. So I ended up really kind of being a latchkey kid. Um, I spent a lot of time alone. I lived in a neighborhood where we had a lot of elderly people or very young couples with babies. There weren't a lot of kids in my neighborhood, so I really, I really. I guess I was one of those kids that had big imagination because I had to, because I I, I was alone a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I had my pretend friends and my baby dolls. And, you know, as I got older, took a lot of bike rides or Mm -hmm. went down to the river and threw rocks or, you know, Mm -hmm. I I guess you'd say I was kind of a loner just because of circumstances. Mm -hmm. I went to Catholic school my whole life, but I remember even as young as about fourth grade, I just had too many questions, and you weren't, a lot of questions weren't welcome in school, you know, when you were questioning faith. I believe it's about fourth grade when you start going to confession, and I remember feeling like, oh, you know, you have to have sins. There's something you have to tell the priest, and I remember lying in the confessional, like, saying that I had talk back to my mom or <laughs> lied to her or whatever, because they made you feel like you were four? so and I remember thinking to myself, it didn't matter what I said in that mm. confessional to the priest, but his answer was, oh, or his the penitence, you know, um, was, you know, say ten Hail Marys and Ten Our Fathers and promise not to do it again. And as a child, I remember thinking, so no matter what I come in here and say that I did. That's all I have to do. It, it, it didn't even make sense logically in a justice type of way. Um, and I thought, who are you? You're a human being and you're not talking to God. I know that. I know you are not talking to God right now and him telling you what I need to do in order to be forgiven. So I would say um, that I became an atheist at a very young age because I just never believed in what the church taught me. I always had a sense of justice and doing right and being good to people and you know being honest and um, you know just an ethical sense. I think that growing up in Christianity taught me that, um, but I guess I had more of this kind of mother earth. I didn't I didn't necessarily believe there was a heaven or a hell. As I got older, as a teenager, I really struggled with God. Um I got into some trouble. I was a little bit of a rebel. I remember saying to a friend like, "Oh my god, what am I going to do in this situation?" Um and she said, "Talk to God." And I said, "God, there's no God. If there was a God, there wouldn't be war and poverty and disease and devastation and all these negative things that exist in life. I couldn't understand how you could say that there was a loving God with negative things. Um, so I was very kind of hardcore in in, in my disbelief, actually. Um, but then when I got to college, I met a lot of mostly Arab students who were here studying. And I'm going to be frank. They were not practicing Muslims. They were going to the bars. They had girlfriends. Um, they were living the dunya, right? But there was something about them that was different than most of like the American guys I knew. There was still that what they had grown up with had been taught in being generous and sincere and kind and um, you know they still had like Islamic principles, but they just weren't living, they weren't practicing, you know, the rituals of prayer and fasting and all of that. Um, I also didn't understand, you know, Islam wasn't really much of a conversation. But it did come up a few times in kind of very awkward ways. And I guess my curiosity got sparked because I had this traditional view that a lot of us here had just from what we saw in the movies that women were second class, um, you know, just really negative ideas about Islam. But I guess by then, being 18 or 19, I guess I knew enough to try to be fair to find out what's the reality not initially. Initially, I said, you're crazy if you think I'm going to live like that. Mm-hmm. When someone first suggested you should learn about Islam, i like go, no, thank you. <laughs> but I really, I, I guess I knew deep down mm-hmm. that that's not fair either because I really don't know anything. Mm-hmm. And so um, there there was a Muslim sister in the group who, again, wasn't practicing. But she is actually the one who said, if you want to learn about Islam, you're not going to learn about it from us. Let me take you to the masjid. Wow. And Yes, SubhanAllah. And so when she took me to the masjid, the brother there was like, you know, how can we help you? And I said, well, I'd really like to meet Muslim women, meaning practicing Muslim women, because I don't I don't know any. And I want to hear I want to hear it from their perspective. Mm -hmm. And so he gave me the phone number to a sister. And then she happened to tell me about a halakha, you know, that they had weekly and invited me to the home of the woman where the halakha was taking place. And this now remember I really knew nothing nothing about true Islam and it came time for Salah and somebody put it you got to remember guys I'm older mm-hmm. right this is back in the day we didn't have internet we you know we had like little cassette tape machines Ooh. and somebody put somebody put in a cassette for the adhan wow. for prayer time and when I heard it I started crying, and I don't know why. Allah and one Allah. of the women said to me, you're a Muslim and you just don't know it. And that was the weirdest thing that everybody, anybody had ever said to me in my life. But I was so emotionally touched by it and for me, I guess I could just go back now and say this is the fitra. Mm. This is, you know, this is the natural instinct. This is the natural, we know inside of us that God exists no matter how much we want to deny it. And this was him just kind of tapping me going, well, hello, wake up. You know, I, it's right here in front of you. Mm-hmm. You just need to embrace it. And so one of the sisters at that halakha really took me under her wing and just sat me down and taught me everything. Wow. She sat me down with Hadith books. Like, you know, for some people oh, picking God. up a Quran mm-hmm. or a translation um, is what guides them to Islam. But because I wasn't spiritual or really, you know, it just seemed too much, almost like reading the old Bible stories in the beginning. Right. I didn't find, I tried to find that close connection, but I didn't. Um, I'm just being honest. This is my path. But when she sat me down and we would read the Hadith, and I got more first into the etiquettes and the um, just some of the amazing things we know in history that happened that are mentioned in the Hadith or, or whatnot, those things really is what grabbed my heart. Mm. And I, I just remember there sometimes like the hadith about how when you talk about Allah, how the angels surround mm. you all the way up to the heavens. And it's almost like you would feel like you could almost, you felt so blessed in those conversations, right? Because I studied so deeply. Her 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 name happened to be Amatullah too. And that's oh. actually why I chose the name Amatullah because she was such, you know,
0: oh, of course
1: Allah. it's through Allah. Mm. It's Allah, Right. But she's the person who taught me my dean. And um I I love her more than, you know, probably any other sister on the face of this oh, earth.
0: Ashallah.
1: And I just I just wanted her name. <laughs> so yeah, that's why I oh chose her. Oh my god, Amtua. why
0: am I getting emotional? Sorry. I need a tissue box. That is probably the most beautiful <laughs> thing I've ever heard. <laughs> In college, AJ met a foreign student from Saudi Arabia on campus. Although at the time there was nothing There was nothing between them. Things, though, quickly changed when she became a Muslim. As soon as he heard, he called her up, boldly asked her for a hand in marriage, and AJ, AJ said yes. AJ was having a whirlwind of romance, the biggest romance of her life with her Saudi prince. But things got quickly too real. AJ, at 20 years old, now had to prepare to move to Saudi Arabia for good. Thankfully, A.J. gets an opportunity to be introduced to a sister from the U.S. that was also living in Saudi that she could connect with. That must have been a big transition, though, going from the Twin Cities to Saudi Arabia at that time. You know, the thing is, you got to remember, the human
1: brain is not fully developed <laughs> until you're 26. OK, no offense <laughs> yeah, to you youngins, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, no, it's at a, 19. Science, uh, it's science, it's fact. Our frontal lobe is not fact. developed
0: at that time. No, absolutely. Not. It's fact. It's fact.
1: So I'm, you know, I'm 19 years old, or maybe I had just turned 20. know, um, <laughs> well, you're a baby. And, you know, I mean, the world, the world was out there for the taking. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I, I didn't... I hate the word naive. I hate yeah, I, to think of myself yeah. as naive because I always felt that I was so mature and mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. But really, no, I was, probably you know, maybe a little, a little naive. And I just went with the flow. I'm like, oh, I'm a Muslim. Here's a Muslim. Well, okay. You know, like, it's fine. Let's just go for it. And, and that's what I did. But honestly i went to saudi arabia with om muhammad's phone number so the sister like look at how allah works so when i went to the masjid and the brother asked you know and i said i want to meet a muslim woman so the first sister that he introduced me to her mother her mother-in-law excuse me lived in syria and om muhammad used to live in syria because her husband's syrian Mm. So these two American women, you know, our elders, knew each other there. Oh, wow. So my friend had the phone number to Umm Muhammad. So when I went to Jeddah, I had her phone number. But of course, I had no idea who she was.
0: AJ didn't get the number of no regular person. She was given the number of Umm Muhammad, a revert Muslim who mastered the Arabic language while studying in Damascus, Syria. Believe it or not, at the time she was studying in Syria... Umm Muhammad was known as Emily Asami, and she wasn't even a Muslim then. In an interview, she famously said, It took me quite a long time to embrace Islam. I'd given up on any kind of religion before that, and I went to live in Syria because my husband's Syrian. And there I found that Islam was more of a tradition than it was a commitment. People couldn't really answer the questions I had, so I realized that I would have to learn how to read Arabic to know what the Muslim scholars were saying. And that, that took me a long time. But they didn't stop Um-Muhammad. When Syria finally opened a two-year extensive course at Damascus University, she joined it. And from there, she went on with the aid of a dictionary, a grammar book, and a simple tafsir. She just sort of struggled along on her own until she felt she was ready. Unfortunately, at the time, it was not easy to become a Muslim in Syria. They would make you meet a priest who'd come specifically to talk you out of converting to Islam. So she thought she would have to study a lot more to be able to answer what the priest was going to say. And that took a bit longer. But alhamdulillah, the priest failed in his effort to dissuade her. And finally, after 12 years, Emily Asami, now known as Umm Muhammad, went to court and took her shahada. And after that, she began her journey in seeking knowledge as a Muslim.
1: We need to remember that in the days of the Prophet Islam and the Sahaba and the Taba'in and all the generations that came after them, how did they learn? They learned in study circles. They didn't have universities at that time. So even though Muhammad Muhammad didn't have an official degree from a university, she studied, and she studied in circles like that, right? And she studied from the great early scholars and also more modern scholars as well. But when it comes to meanings in the quran you have to go back to what those early scholars said absolutely so you don't necessarily as long as you have the language and the understanding right um and she she had been teaching tafsir and fiqh um in uh, an islamic education center for foreigners for there for many years So just when it comes to the credibility, we need to remember that in Islamic circles, this is how education was often passed on. And I, again, I mean that, although Amitullah had given me a very firm foundation, the depth at which we studied with Umm Muhammad was... um, you know, we really into the balagha. I love balagha, which mm-hmm. I never can think of how to say that in English. Um, but like when you get into the meanings of the grammar and how the words are interrelated and you just can comprehend so much more in Arabic when you get into the balagha, right? And so we would we studied that and um, I, I just loved getting in depth with the fiqh. Like I learned so much in my studies with her.
0: When A.J. moved to Saudi, she began to learn from Muhammad in her home. And A.J. was so enthralled with learning from her, so much so it sparked A.J.'s thirst for knowledge and desire to share that knowledge with others. Now, the second part of that, however, only became more clear on how she was going to do that after the tragic passing of her friend's husband, Abu Bilal. So there
1: was a Canadian brother who him and his wife, who's from Fiji, they both studied at al-Qura university in mecca okay they were graduates and they did have their degrees in islamic studies so subhanallah his abu Bilal, he you know went to lead Fajr prayer one day his habit was to come home go to his sitting room and read um and subhanallah his he didn't come out of the room for quite some time and his wife found that he had had a heart attack and passed
0: away yeah and they
1: had five small children and here she's a foreigner in the country and what was she going to do so anyway a group of us had decided that during her you know we would support the family we all put in our you know 10 20 50 bucks whatever every every month and um you know until she could get out of her and find a job and figure it all out well, they kind of lived on the outskirts of Jeddah, between Jeddah and Mecca. And it kind of became my job to um, take the money that was collected every month out to her home. So one month when I was taking the money out there, it just so happened that our car was in the shop. And so my husband at the time had borrowed a friend's car. And when I went, she said, you know, my husband had made an agreement with Darable Cossum to publish this book. Um, can you take the manuscript can you drop it off for me and I said oh sure no problem but because we're using somebody else's car today do you mind if I do it when we get our car back and she said oh no problem so look at how Allah works you know this is really Allah's plan I just said do you mind if I read it Mm. she said oh no go ahead so this was a translation of um I think it's Ibn al-Qayyum's book on the nafs and the ruh on you know the soul and what happens to it at the time of death and after death and yada, yada, yada. Now, this was one subject that I hadn't delved into yet as a Muslim, and I was just enthralled reading that book. However, with all due respect, having been speaking classical Arabic for so long, studying and living in Saudi Arabia, Abu Bilal's English um, sounded very flowery. <laughs> like Arabic. Okay. And, um, kind of in Arabic, there's no punctuation, Mm -hmm. right? You can go on and on and on and on and on. And, um, so that's kind of how the sentence structure and whatnot was happening in the English translation. And I just thought to myself, this is such a good book, but it needs work, you know, for the, from the English side. So I called, excuse me, his wife. And I said, you know, um, I have a friend Mary who's an English editor and I think we could really kind of you know do a little more justice to this work <laughs> uh, you know it's too good not to do that and she said no 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 there's other people who have looked at it they all said it's good and I just had this sinking gut like in your bones feeling that I have to convince her so I called her back and I said you know what maybe if I brought you some examples. I really think you would agree with me. You know, let's really do justice to this book. And it just needs some editing, right? So alhamdulillah, you know, she agreed. And we talked to the publisher. And he said, Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Go ahead, you know, make the changes. Well, in reality, we did a lot of changes, um, just kind of in restruct, you know, not to do any injustice to what he did, but we kind of restructured things. Mm -hmm. And there were times that Mary and I, again, not being fluent, either one of us in Arabic, we kind of struggled sometimes with the Hadith, like, oh, I think he means this, but we don't want to edit it when we could be getting the wrong meaning. Mm -hmm. And that's when we pulled in O Muhammad and said, will you please check the ayahs? Will you please check the Hadith and make sure that the translation... Like the edits that we're making to make it sound better are really the meaning. We, you know, that is the crucial, right? So that's how it all started. We did the first book, we took it back to the publisher, and we had all this read and rearrange and blah, blah, blah. And he said, Oh, I didn't think you were gonna make that many changes. He said, <laughs> If you wanna restructure it, then you need to bring it back to me press ready. And I just said, Oh, okay, not knowing. At mm. all, what that meant exactly, <laughs> how I was going to accomplish it, um, and I was talking to another friend of mine, and I said, Aisha, what have I gotten myself into? Now we've done all this work, and I don't know what to do. Now you also have to remember, we didn't have computer in school when I was in school. Computer, home computers were just kind of coming on the scene. Not, you know, none of us. I knew how to type. I mean, when I went to typing in college, it was on your old manual typewriters. What? Okay. You're lying. Yes, I'm an old woman, girl. Typewriters? <laughs> oh. Yes, yes. When I was in college, we used typewriters. So, yes, I didn't really know how to use a computer. So my friend Aisha pops up and says, well... You know, I, we know a brother, he owns a computer store. Let's talk to him and see if there's, you know, anything. Anyway, long story short, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless Abdurrahman Shah is his (laughs) name, (laughs) because he loaned me his computer. He got me a program that taught me how to typeset. Um. That poor brother over many years, I I messed up so many things. I ended up buying a computer from him and I kept messing things up because I didn't know what I was doing. And he kept having to face, just like, just don't touch stuff, you know, (laughs) just use the programs. Don't try to get to the guts of the computer. But anyway, he had so much patience. Um, Anyway, I really ended up being self-taught because of the help that brother Abdurrahman gave me. And so I, I typeset the first book. I took it back to the publisher. You know, it wasn't perfect, but it was pretty good for a newbie. And after that, he just said, um, I would really like you guys to continue. And we did another of Abu Balal's books that he had done. And um, the re- as they say, the rest is history.
0: After succeeding publishing Ibn Khaym's book for a bunch of amateurs, as she describes it, They continued to translate more of Abu Bilal's books to his publisher, Brother Suleiman, who was the owner of the bookstore, Dado Abu Qasim. At the time, she also recruited another American revert sister by the name of Mary Kennedy because she had a knack in correcting pronunciation and grammar mistakes like a pro. And together, for a long time, they translated some of the most popular and respected Islamic books for the world, minimizing the gap of accessibility of classic Islamic literature by renowned scholars for the English-speaking world, which, by the way, wasn't as common back then, which is truly incredible, eh? These women were pioneers in the game. Imagine all the people these women have helped learn their dean that weren't native Arabic speakers, and barely anybody knew their names. So, uh, out of curiosity, how did the Names International come about? How would you guys name (laughs) yourselves? We were
1: just... Yeah. I, you know, it was a suggestion. We just couldn't think of anything. Um, and so we were just kind of throwing names out there and it's like, well, inshallah, everything's going to be sahih. You know, it's going to be correct. Right. Um, yep. <laughs> authentic. That, 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 you know, that's based a good on, way to,
0: you know, name it, you know, keep your motivation. Right.
1: On. And then the international came about simply because in the mid 1990s, Um, I did make a contract with Suleiman that I was his sole distributor of his books in the U S and Canada.
0: Oh, so
1: people used to order directly from him from Jeddah and ship them over. And then at that time, no, I shipped everything over and then people, bookstores here in America had to order directly from me.
0: Okay. um,
1: and so, you know, we had already been publishing, you know. so I, The International just got tagged on there because hopefully the things would go internationally eventually. Um, you know, I don't think there was too much thought about it. It's just we needed a name, yeah. and it was going to press, and so we had to put a name on there. Yeah. I mean, this well, this is from the time of Abu Bilal's first book on the Nafsan rule. We, you know, it was said edited and typeset by Sehi hey International.
0: Mm-hmm. Where and, and you mentioned uh, before that women weren't allowed to, you don't have published companies and they weren't allowed to even probably edit so it, it made sense that for you guys to have an incognito name is that also was it also to be able to do what you guys Well did? it's not that it's
1: not that you couldn't have a publishing company foreigners couldn't have a publishing company I think there was only if I if if I was told that I was only the second woman in Saudi Arabia to ever get a license to publish wow it's called dar Right. Um, whether that's exactly accurate, you know, don't hold me to it. That's what I was told. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it's not that women couldn't do things. It just wasn't common yet. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, a lot of things that women were doing at that time was behind closed doors. And believe me, there's women there who own factories and architects architectural firms and you know, but it was all kind of behind the scenes. Uh Saudi Arabia has changed drastically mm-hmm, since then mm-hmm. and everything's, you know, open. But in those days, women just were not out there. You know, they were teachers or doctors or things like that, um, in the banks or something, but there wasn't a lot of women out in the public doing things. Like there there were some times that I would sit in my store and people would be shocked that a woman was sitting behind the desk in a store. <laughs> At, in those days. That was before women worked in grocery stores and, uh, you know, yeah. Yeah, that makes
0: sense. There used to be Powerpuff Girls, Charlie's Angels, Destiny Child, famous girl groups. But I now I'm realizing there was someone before them. Sih International. The girl group we didn't know we needed. At first, you know, they started their journey with translating Abu Bilal's books it eventually carpooled into something much, much more. They also started working with Brother Suleiman more seriously. Publishing for this bookstore, locally, international. I mean, these people were superstars. Superstars. Real, real, real superstars. As well as for the Da'wah Center, Muhammad Ta'ra, too. And then Aja gets this crazy idea, okay? She gets the craziest idea to translate the book, the best book on earth. The book that was sent to mankind as a mercy and guidance. Can you guess? The Quran. But to AJ's surprise, eh? It wasn't the easiest project to get the girl group on board.
1: I knew with the limited Arabic that I have, I knew that she had the ability to make me comprehend things about Quran that I never got from previous translations. And I will give you one example, like the word Oliya. In Yusuf's Ali translation back, you know, I've been a Muslim for over 30 years, so that's what I came into Islam with. Um, He said, you know, do not take the non-believers as friends. That's how he translated Oliya, as friends. But when we were in class with Muhammad and she translated it as allies and explained like this is in a time of war you can't go to the other side you can't um, you know you have to trust and stick with your community and all of that uh, so it was the subtle meanings. Um, as a new Muslim, I was ignorant. And when it said, don't take non-Muslims as friends, I took it very literally. Mm. And I started to think, oh, my God, you know, do I have to give up my friends? Um, uh, and maybe that was naive. And maybe it was because I was just a, a young girl, you know, eight nineteen 19 years old, something like that. But I just, and there's so many other examples, you know, um, don't take, in the old translations that said, no slumber or sleep overtakes him, but if you look up the definitions in English of slumber and sleep, they literally mean the same thing, right? But Sina in Arabic is that point where you're really, you're, you're still aware of what's going around you, but you're super tired, We don't have a word in English, actually, for this. But the closest that O Muhammad could think of was drowsiness. Mm. But again, the explanation. Like, I learned the subtleties uh, in things that, as best as you could, in a second language. Because nothing will ever compare to Arabic, right? Mm. So, of course, learning from her and comprehending... I was, I really wanted her to do a translation and she was just like, no way, like nobody's going to take us seriously. We're women, you know, foreign women living in Saudi Arabia, da-da-da-da-da. But we had been working um, for several years up to that time with a publisher uh, working as subcontractors to edit other authors who brought him things in English. So he was, Darabul Qasim, was owned by a man named Suleiman Qasim. He was actually the first a publisher in Saudi Arabia to really concentrate on books in foreign languages, meaning, you know, of course, not Arabic, right? So, Indonesians, uh, uh, English, Tagalog, you know, whatever. Um, even before Dar es Salaam really got big, he was the person, like, all of us went to as new Muslims to get books. And so, we just started doing work for him, and I kept telling him, oh, Muhammad has this amazing ability. You know, as a native English speaker, Things had never been so concise and clear, and so I was trying to encourage her to do it, and she just wouldn't do it, and I think it took us about three years to finally convince her. Um, She had finally, even for her to even pray istikhara for the first time, because she just kept saying, no, 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 no. And after she prayed the istikhara, even though she had several volumes of tafsir, it turned out that somebody gifted her um, another set that she had always kind of wanted, and Originally, we had thought that we would just take Halali and Khan's translation, which, of course, we know that they made a lot of improvements in Akita over like Yusuf Ali's, but their English was kind of lacking. Mm. Um, They would put in a lot of definitions within the text that didn't necessarily fit within each of those ayahs. So it was kind of clumsy in places. Yeah. But we thought, okay, we can take the improvements they've done and we'll just try to further improve it. But... Once we had gotten into that, we saw that it was actually more difficult to try to correct somebody's work than to just start over. Mm. Um, so then I literally typed up the whole Quran, and then <laughs> Muhammad ended up basically just rewriting the whole entire thing. Um, so, you know, my job and Mary's job was to work as uh, editors and a lot of times I would say, Oh Muhammad didn't want it to be a tough seer. Mm. She wanted it just to be translation. But we would keep saying, But we've got to put a footnote on this verse. Mm. This is a verse that people don't comprehend. They need a little more explanation. And she just was trying to resist. But there were times that I just said, No, I like, I insist we have to say something about this verse, right? But at the same time, it also took us another three years. To actually go through it numerous, numerous, numerous times, you do not want to, you know. Yes, we're human beings, but we we wanted to be on top of it as much as we possibly could, and so the first edition was published in 1997. So, in that journey,
0: okay, I would assume the more responsibility would have got to you guys if I was given the response like to work on this. I would, you know, like naturally I would be like, "Oh my god, what if I make a mistake? What if I, you know, harm the, you know, um the infertile this, this this the book of Allah Taala misinterpreted the wrong way? Was that at all like it, it, did it ever get to you guys where you're like, "Oh my god, what are we doing? Maybe we shouldn't be doing this?" Was there ever a time where you got Absolutely. You, the, the, maybe your motivation went, you know, cuz it's 6 years, motivation was you know, maybe depleted? Like what was that journey like? I don't think the
1: motivation ever depleted, honestly. I think there was so much buttercup in it. There was so much enthusiasm about it. I think what was frustrating is that daily life got in the way. You know, Mary and I both had, um, well, Mary had small kids at that time. Um, I just had a lot going on, uh, you know, doing other projects. And, you know, O Muhammad was teaching and, you know, had her family as well. And, you know, then again, like I said, just the living in that society at that time where it was hard to get together and do things. Um, it was just the frustration of not being able to go faster, but yes, I mean, this is the words of wa ta'ala that you are trying to fairly, um, put out, you know, and you don't, want to make a mistake and yet you know you're human and you know that you can. So it's a it's a huge amana, but that's why you also have to really trust especially in the early scholars. Um, you know, and and their tafsirs and you have to be careful with tafsir too because there's tafsirs that have weak hadith, there's tafsir that have israiliyat, you know, stories of of, you know, prior generations that were not islamic. Um, you have also people's personal opinions that get incorporated into that so it's really necessary to be knowledgeable if you don't have that knowledge to be able to go through tafsir and know that you cannot literally trust in everything that's mentioned there but alhamdulillah with the knowledge that O muhammad had based on studying all of those people she was able to decipher through that wow And the other thing is, is that uh, 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 something that happens is that people want to, you know, sometimes translators, um, especially there were Arabs sometimes who called in or, or wrote in and made suggestions and said, well, I looked up in the dictionary and I don't understand why you use that term or whatever. When the dictionary says, well, you cannot rely on modern standard Arabic to go back to the original tafsir. Some words have literally changed in meaning to be almost opposite of what they meant back then you know so um having knowledge is is absolutely the first step not only in arabic but in the target language in in its english or whatever translation whatever language you're going into you have to know sometimes even just the way that people use things right in the in the daily usage um you can't rely on dictionaries
0: yeah was there times where um between you mary and muhammad we had to remind each other you know, like why you guys are doing this? Were there moments where you had to kind of like, you know, regroup, you know, when, when things were, you know, frustrating and hard?
1: I, I don't really feel like we struggled with that. We struggled more with um, debating about uh, grammar and usage because there was several intents. Um, Mohammed wanted to keep to the Arabic as much as possible but then you start getting into some funny sounding English sometimes you know the construction of the two languages is so different so how can we stay true to the Arabic try to help students of Arabic to help them to be able to follow along and yet make it pleasant to the English readers sense you know that is the biggest challenge um literally we would have debates about yeah but the common changes the meaning here to be such and such or mm-hmm. such you know mm-hmm. uh it was really technical the difficulties were those, those those technical issues yeah in language yeah
0: when you guys um finally you know did it and you were done what was that like the day you guys were like we're done It's said to brother sulaiman and he's gonna do with he, he's gonna do with it as he wishes what was that day like I guess it
1: was just kind of like, okay, Bismillah, <laughs> you know. And I don't think that we thought we were gonna have to go back so many times and kind of have to review some things.
0: Mm. Yeah, we probably thought, whew, we're done. Yeah. But <laughs> it wasn't that simple. It wasn't because you guys were always going to have to improve it because it, 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 it's something you guys started. So the errors and, and 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 it's I mean, like when you do something that is you know physical Satala and you're working. You know, with Allah's book, you're not just gonna just think, okay, I'm done. You're going to try to revisit it. You're gonna try to see if there's areas that you, you know, made mistaken. So I can imagine that it was it was a it was a it was a relationship that it was not ending. You know, like it was always gonna continue. And and the interesting part here is that when you guys published the first edition, your names were not on it. Nobody knew right. that women translated this. I think we learned a lot about the way that men have contributed. You know, the way that men have participated in this deen. But to hear that women, especially three white American women, you know, who converted to Islam had, had made this huge contribution. Because I, I've i never told you this about Amtala. Your translation is a translation that made me really understand the Quran. Was you're the only translation I understood? I didn't like Yusuf Ali. I didn't like Muhsin. Um, and then the art thou ones I could not. That was, those are the ones I originally saw when I was rediscovering my faith but it was your translation that really um, gave me the thirst of knowledge because I could finally understand what Allah was saying to me, right? I think we
1: always looked at the work not as our project. Mm-hmm. This was Allah's project and Allah uses you. Mm-hmm. And if I, I, we just kept, if there was anything that we regrouped in, it was making the dua that we are doing this with the right niya, with the right intention. That this was for Allah, this was for the Ummah, this was to share. That That's where I always came from. This is why I wanted it, not because we wanted, you know, any kind of attention or recognition, never. That's never what we wanted. That's why it was so hard to find us, because that we we, we never wanted to speak about it, really. We just wanted the book to be out there and people to benefit,
0: mm-hmm. right?
1: So when you do something for the right niyah, then Allah, inshallah, you know, inshallah,
0: he really blessed it. Avatal, do you ever have voice where you think about potentially the amount of people that have accepted Islam because of the translations you guys did? Do you ever think about that? Do you ever think, think No. Do you ever do you ever think about what this work could mean in the sight of Allah? Do you ever think about that? Like, or do you just think, I hope Allah accepts it? You know, like who knows, you know?
1: Um, so Mary used to say to her kids when they would do good deeds when they were little, she'd say, (laughs) cha-ching, like you just added something to your bank, you know, for Jenna. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes I would, that would kind of go in my head like, oh, inshallah, there's a cha-ching right there. (laughs) there. There's a cha-ching, a little, a little deposit.
0: No, (laughs) let me confirm A little little deposit. absolutely a cha-ching. And I hope that Allah accepts it from you because it's a huge, it's a huge thing because... That was, the, that was the thing that, because I don't speak Arabic, right? I don't, I'm learning Arabic, right? But I don't speak Arabic. You know, I grew up in the West. I'm as, as Canadian as Canadian can be, right? Um, and so the English translation is what we need. It's our, it's the thing that we need before we get into the next level. And so whatever that is, is, is so detrimental to our understanding of Allah's book. Inshallah, I hope to learn Arabic so I don't have but to I be wanna, limited by it. But it's a starter. It's where we start. You know, that's where we land. This is where our first entrance of the door is. This is where our thirst begins. This is where we get to understand Allah a little bit better. And then inshallah, our journey could do. It's the first door. It's It's the first door. Right. For
1: For me, it was about the correctness, because like I said, I struggled with some concepts in Islam when I first became Mm -hmm. a Muslim, because they weren't presented in an understandable way, because the translations were poor. And I think that having become a Muslim myself and struggled with that, when I met somebody that could make me understand properly, that's why I was so kind of gung-ho, and we have to do this, right? But I also want to talk real. I mean, I can't have that project define who I am. That's not who I am. I am a human being that struggles. You know, people I used to, like people in Jeddah would find out who who, who I quote unquote was. I mean, I'm nobody special. I'm just a person that happened to do that. That does not define me. And I used to really shy away and, and, and get embarrassed by that. I didn't ever want to be introduced as, oh, this is the owner of Sahih International or, you know, uh, because really in reality, my part of it is very minor. Um Muhammad is, if anybody deserves the credit for it, she's the one who was able to get that language, you know, uh, um, out, out there, right? But I know myself... The, you can't have people look up to you as you're something special or you did something incredible when you're so much more complex than that one project that you happen to accomplish. You know, I, I struggle as a Muslim. Sometimes you hear these speakers out here and they've accomplished these great things, but we can't, I don't want to use the word idolize because that's wrong, but, uh, you know, uh, you know what I mean? No. Like we look up yeah, to somebody. Like, yeah. oh, I can't reach that level. Mm-hmm. And I would just think, people, you don't know me. You don't know what hardships I've gone through. You don't know the trials that I've gone through. You don't know um, anything about me. You only know that I participated in this project, and that does not define me
0: as a person or as a Muslim. As the years passed, Brother Suleiman, the owner of Dar al Qasim bookstore, was getting older. And he eventually got really, really sick. He could no longer keep his store open anymore, and so he closed it down. Despite the fact that he was getting offers from others to inquire his store, he just didn't find someone he trusted would keep the da'wah going and the work sincere. And so he kept his bookstore closed, and he let the precious books collect dust. Until AJ made him an offer he couldn't refuse. Find out next week to hear the rest of Amatalah Bentley's story. If you thought part 1 was good, part 2 part 2 is going to make you shed tears you've never shed before. So get ready. This episode is brought to you by Beautiful Light Studios. I'd love to give a shout-out because you know I say giving shout-outs because I'm from Toronto, the 6th. I want to give a shout-out to my producer, Mujuk Omar. Thank you for editing this episode and for being wonderful. Barakalafa, kiss, kiss, kisses. <laughs> Special thanks to our sister producers, Khawaya and Nima Haroon. Um, graphic designer, Sima, aka okay, Sima Farah. And now I can say this with Sima. Sima, Sima, where the keys? Sima, bima. JazakAllah for the graphic design. It is incredible. And I'd also love to give a shout-out to our marketing extraordinaire, you already know you know what it is, baby sis. Actually, I should call you big sis. My bad. <laughs> but thank you, guys, all for your hard work. If this podcast gave you any value, we're leaving it up to you this year. Donate however much you feel like it gave to you. We have a big team who put so many hours into bringing the show to life. If you can't give right now, that's fine. Just keep with your eyes. That's enough. I'll see you guys next week in your ears, in your speakers, telling you what telling you a good story.